0: Welcome to the Contrarian Marketing Podcast, where we give you ideas you might not be thinking about. Today, Eli and I are talking about BuzzFeed News and Vice shutting down and what that means for the media landscape. Before we jump in, Eli, what happens with
1: Google? Google's been talking about returning to office. So employees coming back to their offices and to their, wherever they're supposed to be. At least, I think it initially started with one day a week, and now it's up to three days a week. And they've been talking about it for a long time. And now they have officially said, you have to come back for three days per week. I think it's Tuesday through Thursday. Neither of us are Google employees. So it's all hearsay and media say and friends say, but three days per week, or you don't have a job anymore. So this is kind of interesting. Well, first of all, I think background on this is surprisingly to many people, there is still a federal health emergency. So three and plus years after covid started there's a federal health emergency which ends on May 11th so i think we'll put this out right around that time so May 11th covid's finally over and google's it, and other companies are following along and they're requiring that companies that their employees come back to the office i am in favor of this i think that more productivity happens in the office but i am in favor of flexibility and the, this has been talked about online especially reddit they're calling it a quiet layoff so Employees were quiet quitting when times were good and they had all the power, and now companies are doing quiet layoffs. What have you heard, Kevin? Yeah, I don't want to say I told you so, but
0: I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. Just kidding. Does <laughs> kid. No, I kinda of did, but no, that's not the play here. It makes perfect sense. These companies are doing as much as they can to lay off more people. Because yesterday I found out that my former employer, Shopify, laid off another 20% of people. And it is very handy that you can set up a rule that you know a lot of people won't be able to follow, and then you don't have to pay them severance and do all the other stuff that you do, because technically they quit or technically they don't comply with the company's contract. I know that it's not just Google and Meta doing that. Other big tech companies, I'm not going to call them out now, but I know that they have been doing that some a bit more behind the scenes than others. This will lead to more layoffs and it's, it's very convenient. It goes hand in hand with their kind of work culture. At the same time, they all need to lay off a lot more people. And I don't like saying that because I know how painful it is to be laid off, but all these tech companies, they might need to cut more closer to 40 to 50% of people rather than 10 to 20. So they're doing these several rounds of layoffs, which seem less bad, but are also decreasing morale. So long story short, it makes sense. I don't think it's a great move. At the same time, they also are necessary. Totally. And I don't want to be the one defending the
1: big, bad Mr. Scrooge here, but companies are perceived as social good. And we talked about this you know, in a prior podcast. So if you and I, we had our own company and our employees were being lazy or stealing from us or you know, not complying with the rules, we wouldn't like if the world couldn't said, no, you have to continue to pay them and they need to be your employees. You're required to pay them. I think there's a sentiment online that's how dare the companies do this the governments need to step in they've tricked us but again from an employer standpoint from a shareholder value standpoint if they are in google in particular as a big company in facebook they spend billions of dollars on real estate and they want people in those seats again not to defend them too much they are entitled to change and i don't think when they signed offer agreements they said you will never have to come to our office if they did then they're legally bound to that but they're not so there's a perception that this was your job and i know that you've been in this position i've been in this position where you signed up for one thing and things change you know you get a different boss you get a different role you get different coworkers and if you don't like it you can leave and this i think is a it's on a grander scale the same idea yes you were led to believe that you didn't have to come to the office but things change and you're entitled to either move closer to the office or come in on the office, come into the office and that's what you have to do or not get another job. I mean, I spent a long time in office and it sucked or that's the way it is. And you know, we get used to certain perks and they go away. I have sympathy on both sides
0: of the aisle here. Same. There's no hard line that I can draw here. I can see it from both sides. And I wouldn't even go as far as saying that, you know, em- employees were made believe that they can work remotely forever. A lot of these companies have basically pushed their come back to office call back and back. And now we're three years, you know, after the breakout of the pandemic and these companies are finally insisting on their word. So, but at the same time, if I was an employee, I would probably talk to my lawyer about severance. I think it's totally fine to say, look, I don't want to come back to the office, but then kind of, I think there's probably a legal gray zone here. And I think these companies getting completely away without paying severance. And so doesn't sound right to me. So. Not alone here, I'm not not giving any advice here, but you get by drift. I think it should be a fair separation. A hundred percent. And I think that it's possible the
1: companies don't know who's caught up in this. On each individual case, they may say, well, you know, given the choice, we might want you just to come and figure out how you can still be an employee. Or others, given the choice, we'd love to lay you off. We just didn't put you on a list before, so stop coming to the office so
0: we can lay you off. So I think it's all individual. (laughs) So speaking of layoffs, that's also the main topic of our episode today. A little bit of context, Vice, the media company, owning Vice TV and Refinery29, they used to be valued at almost $6 billion in 2017. And then recently, a couple of days ago, actually, the New York Times reported that they're preparing to file for bankruptcy. And just now today, is so we're recording this on Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo, by the way, Eli. And happy Star Wars Day that was yesterday, very important. Actually, for
1: yesterday, it was a more important holiday for me. In Spaceballs, they changed May the Force Be With You to May the Schwartz be with you. So that was my day. <laughs> uh,
0: Spaceballs for our Gen Z listeners is a very important movie. Yeah. You have to watch it. If you if you don't watch it, you don't understand marketing really. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so anyway, 2017, uh, valued at almost 6 billion, now filing for bankruptcy. And it just turned out that they might have found a buyer for three to $400 million. So there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on. If they were to sell For three to four hundred millions, that means popular big-time investors like James Murdoch, the son of Rupert Murdoch, would completely lose their investment and yet at the same time would be great for the people who work in advice. In the same vein, BuzzFeed announced that they're letting go 15% of their workforce, which is about 180 people, and they shut down their BuzzFeed news division, which won several Pulitzer prizes, but never really monetized well. And so obviously like two big companies that were that had a lot of money, both shut down their news division. And I want to talk a little bit about how that changes the media landscape and what we see in store for publishers, for media in general, if that means something specifically for news, which then we can learn something about from marketing. So Eli, pass it over to you for now. So in all the articles I read, one of the best headlines
1: referred to this as a murder suicide pact with Facebook. I don't remember who wrote it. So. We can't put it in the show notes. A lot of these sites like BuzzFeed, Vice, and you know, these are examples. There were all these like made for Facebook sites where they were driving Facebook was driving tons of traffic to them. They were creating all this clickbait. In the same way, Facebook, they started dictating terms so that Facebook would say, We need this short form media, and you have to do that. And they complied because that was where it all came from. And then there were many complaints to Facebook and Facebook started losing their users. And Facebook changed the algorithm and ruined those sites. So it can be argued that they were sort of made for a channel. And when the channel disappeared, the value of the, these websites and the value of their media organizations disappeared, whereas, you know, you and I do SEO. So like if you make a website just for SEO and all your traffic is Google and Google changes the algorithm, you're pretty screwed. But if you make a website of value and you make a product of value and SEO is one of your channels and you lose it, hopefully you have another channel. So I, I think these sites were very much in the social medias here forever landscape. And when it, some of that disappeared, they found themselves to be in quite a bit of trouble, not differentiated, very, you know, BuzzFeed's case, buzzy. And I have an interesting story about BuzzFeed. I actually met the uh, BuzzFeed founders and I met the BuzzFeed team when they were founded. I forget the connection, but I was working at a startup. We were producing real media, we were producing automotive content, but we were somehow connected in that media landscape maybe similar investors. And I met Jonah Peretti and I met the whole team and BuzzFeed team. They were in this like small office in Chelsea in Manhattan. At the time they were, what they had created was this idea that they were going to use. Now people do this with other technology, but they were going to use what's trending and like a Google trends kind of thing, and then create news based on scientific algorithms. I think Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed has like a Ted talk on this. They never really amounted to that. They never came up with that. Others had the same idea and they went straight into like these top headlines and all Facebook kind of things, not differentiate it. But I think it is important to call out that not all media is dying. You know, the New York Times itself was almost bankrupt and they're thriving. The Wall Street Journal, you know, they were bought by Rupert Murdoch's company and everyone said that's the end of them and they're thriving. So media is thriving despite all the changes that have happened in media. And Buzzfeed and vice are not. So I think it's important that we talk about that. It's not all media. that's dying. It's,
0: it's a certain kind of media. Yes, exactly. It is a certain kind of media. The media landscape in general has changed. As you said, social platforms like Facebook or Meta in general, the broader meta ecosystem positioned themselves as this big savior and alternative to Google traffic, and that's collapsed basically with the feed as well, right? So the feed changed a lot from companies to people. You see that in Meta, you also see that in LinkedIn, where brands used to be much more successful, even on Twitter. And now it's all about people. So I think part of the reason is also that the people get so many more news now directly from people and journalists have always been the middleman between experts and people, unless they do, what's it called? Like investigative journalism, where they, you know, kind of discover scandal and stuff, which is super valuable, which I think needs to be, you know, supported and funded and all that kind of stuff. But Essentially, if you have, say for the pandemic, you have medical experts to make a statement, journalists are, their job is to basically polish that and synthesize that, wrap that up in a way that the masses understand, the non-experts better said. And that's going away because any doctor can be on Twitter now, you know, th- that function is not necessarily needed anymore. And yet at the same time, especially in news, the whole thing is about being the first to, to break a story, anybody who's second or third basically has lost the race. It's old news, unless you can add quite like significantly more material to the topic or, or news to the topic in that sense. But it's a winner takes it all game. That doesn't leave a lot more on the table, right? Like it doesn't leave a lot of room. And so I think part of this is the social platforms breaking away as, as traffic channel, second is the nature of news, which both Vice and BuzzFeed invested in just being very cutthroat, winner takes it all. And I think third is that none of them were able to substantially build their evergreen organic traffic as a compensation mechanism for news. So when you look at the New York Times, which you just mentioned, they bought the Wirecutter and they, they bought Wordle and some other non-newsy businesses to support the news business. Vice was never able to really get that going and BuzzFeed was able to get that going that's why they shut down news and not the whole company.
1: And more than anything around this. And New York Times, they're not just making money off of Wirecutter and Wordle. Wirecutter, I think, is an affiliate site. But New York Times, the big thing New York Times is making money off of is subscriptions. People are actually paying for it. And it's great that the media companies have pivoted. If you think back to, I guess we're talking like 15, 20 years ago, the entire media industry, all newspapers in the world were mad at Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, because he destroyed them. He took away where they made all the revenue from classifieds. So everyone was able to just like list their house or list their yard sale for free. And they didn't have to pay the media and the media. Then they tried to pivot into selling subscriptions, into selling more newspapers. But people didn't really need that because there was, you know, you didn't need to wait for the morning to find out what happened in the news the day before. But New York Times pivoted into really creating another media, really creating great content that people are willing to pay for and willing to subscribe to so much so that A lot of what media does is incredibly expensive. Like there have been like fascinating reports. I forget which organization it was, but they had like someone behind the lines in Kabul after the American military left, like that's risky and that's expensive. And that employee is expensive. And that whole security situation is expensive. And it's off the backs of those subscriptions. They're not, you know, funding it the way a startup funds, you know, big bets they've survived on that and buzzfeed and vice and there's so many other sites that just don't find their space that to really create value and the new york times is a destination people wake up and subscribe to it and they check out what's on there and it's not just oh there's an interesting article on google i'll click on it because it's the new york times vice buzzfeed all these other sites they didn't create themselves as destinations and then one other thing i'd add here is buzzfeed could have made themselves a credible media organization they had the right people but they didn't do the things to enhance their credibility. So the one big one, I don't know who's familiar with this. When Trump was elected, there were a lot of people that really didn't like Trump and wanted to do anything they can to make him disappear. So there was this thing that was called the Steele dossier, where a former British intelligence agent had collected a bunch of things about Trump. And it turns out that it was oppo research. And some of there was some really weird stuff in there. We're not we're going to keep our podcast safe for work. But there was some really safe stuff in there. Other media referenced that the FBI was investigating something that came from British intelligence and they didn't say what was in it. Buzzfeed was the only one that published the thing incomplete. Like they published, I think it was 39 pages. They published a whole 39 pages. Google it, you know, Google steel dossier. Well, other media said, we don't know if this is real. We don't know if this, we can trust this. We don't know like anything we will reference that it might exist. Buzzfeed was like, yeah, what the hell we'll publish this whole thing. So it's those kinds of things that when it blows up and it's like, well, that was fake and it was opera research and it wasn't even real news, it blows up your credibility. So when a BuzzFeed investigative journalist might call someone and say, hey, I'm an investigative journalist for BuzzFeed, it might be like, well, what you said is off the record, what you told me is going to be off the record, might not really be off the record. I don't know if I can trust you. And that ruins the credibility of media going forward. I think that's a big thing there that BuzzFeed could have been a regular media organization funding themselves like regular media. They never really built their credibility and they never really built the reason that someone would subscribe and pay. And it's not just about advertising. I really love
0: what you call out here because there's another way in which those media companies lost credibility, and that's with exceptionally clickbaity headlines. I understand the importance of copywriting and you want to evoke interest in your readers. And it is hard to stand out from the noise and catch people's attention because there's so much content out there. But Vice started as a, as a very credible, lots of meat around the bone type of journalism kind of company. And then they turned into Refinery29, where everything is, you know, like cancer and everything is death and war and collapse and, and, and hardcore mongering. I understand how media companies get addicted to that because they see their publisher revenue, their ad revenue going up, but it destroyed their credibility long-term. I posted on LinkedIn about uh, Vice and Buzzfeed, basically, you know, somewhat along the lines of the talking points that we had here, the founder of the growth team advice, Sterling Proffer commented on it. And we got into a really interesting conversation and he raised a really good point, which is that part of what made the media companies struggle so real is that Facebook and Google commoditize their content. Like in the classic newspapers, we're talking about actual paper, not reading newspapers online, you would recognize the newspaper by their font, by their layout, by their style. And all that kind of went away when Facebook and, and Google pushed media companies to publish content in the same format and Sterling calls out specifically AMP. And I think that's an absolutely fair point and really important to understand. Google really pushed publishers, any editorial content producer for that matter, to use AMP and commoditized content even more. I have my strong opinions about AMP, but I don't think it was a good idea. They also lost a lot of, you know, analytical capabilities. Long story short, publishers went through this phase of commoditization on top of news being a winner-takes-it-all game. And that's certainly how uh, hurt them in the long run as well. Eli, like, what can we learn from VICE and Buzzfeed as contrarian marketers? Like, what are the lessons here? I have a couple of, of thoughts, but I wanted to let you go first. <laughs> my, my biggest lesson is the
1: thing that I always do that I've been doing for years of my consulting is really build a product. Like it's not just about building revenue. So then I, I talk to startup founders and I talk to, you know, potential consultants all the time. And they're always like, well, I want to do this because there's a lot of money here. And I just talked to someone last week. who's was like, I see this huge opportunity. I'm going to, I want to capture all this revenue. I want to capture the TAM." The follow-up question is always with what? Not we don't know enough about the decision making behind BuzzFeed and decision making behind Vice when they started, but they saw as like, hey, there's Facebook here. We could capture a lot of, in a sense, the TAM, like people are clicking and they're going for this clickbait stuff. We could raise venture money. We can create all this content and we can capture it rather than like, are we building an actual product? Are we building something that has the potential for a strong word of mouth that are like, hey, did you see what was on BuzzFeed today? And all that. I think that's the biggest lesson you can take from this, which is. If you build a product, then you have something that people want. So even if the channel that is driving the most value to you and most revenue to you changes, you still have a product. You still have something people want. If you don't, and the channel goes away, then you're done. If you have only one salesperson and that salesperson goes away. Then you're done, right? So, like, that's sort of what happened for Vice and uh, BuzzFeed and all the other media getting shut down, is they were sort of made for Facebook, and then Facebook went through its own challenges, and they didn't have anything to pivot to because it was all made around that channel. What's your What's your take? I have uh, two to three
0: takes. Very much agree with yours. I, I think so. First of all, I expect a lot more publishers to go bankrupt or be sold or acquired by the companies. I do think, from a strategic perspective, buying one of these publishers might actually be a great idea. Because if your main product is not content in itself, if you don't make money through ads, but a product, then all of a sudden this whole content game makes a lot of sense. It actually works pretty beautifully. E-commerce is a great example where you see more, and more e-commerce companies publish a lot more editorial content, you know, starting with bio guides, but then also more trend pieces and more, you know, commentary on contemporary topics. That I think is a very sustainable model. I know for a fact that it, it can drive revenue up and fund the whole media organization. So I think buying media a company, maybe not vice or something that costs six billion dollars. I mean, for the matter, three to four hundred million. But in general, media companies buying I think is a strategic, smart move. Second, if you don't buy a company, I think building one makes a lot of sense because these media companies are struggling. They're probably they will have to cut down output significantly unless they use AI, which I'm not sure it's the best idea, you can tap into that space. So it might be a great time right now to publish more content that big media companies cannot fulfill. So I think there's an opportunity here in that sense as well. You know, I already started with an, a, a prediction for the future, which is that more media companies will shut down or sell, but I wanted to see what do you have in store? What do you predict for the future in media?
1: It's hard to have any conversation now. You can have a conversation, but you can't go more than one or two minutes without using the word AI. Everything's AI. It's <laughs> so funny. Cause like six months ago was well, maybe a year ago it was crypto. And then the year before that it was, is metaverse. I think AI is here to stay. Although caveat, I think people thought crypto was here to stay and that everything's gonna be about crypto. I think there's going to be an AI media company. I think that the challenge of gathering news, a lot of the news can be gathered by AI. And can be really distributed. It can be dissected and then distributed. So if you look at the world of finance and the world of non-professional sports, AI has been doing that for a long time. If you want to know, like Apple's earnings, and you want to read about Apple's earnings, there's a lot of real analysts and a lot of you know journalists that have written about that. But if you want to know about you know my former company, SurveyMonkey's earnings, no one's covering that. So that's going to be written by AI. I mean, go you go Google that right now, and you're going to read like under earnings summary, and you can be like wrote this and it's ai same goes with sports like you want to know about high school sports in many towns where high school sports aren't important but they are covered by some sort of media that's going to be ai so there'll be ai that will go and gather let's say tweets and it'll understand what's happening around like the context and then it'll write the story so it'll essentially be an ai media company so that that's my prediction I don't think it's that much of a prediction and it's pretty certain it's going to happen.
0: I think it's a good one though. I actually think a lot more companies should use AI to create content just in a better fashion than, well, you know, just the copy pasting the raw output. Anyway, I think, you know, I think we have some good tips. We kind of illustrated the points here. Let's leave our listeners with an update on this Slack group. So you have a really tight idea that I'm intrigued about. Pitch it to me. So I just passed my four year anniversary as a consultant. And when I think
1: back about like what made me go and quit my job and start consulting I think I'm pretty insane. Like if I was advising myself, I would say, no, don't quit your job. Like you've benefits and you have a salary and you know, where you're going every day and you're going to quit, like wake up and not have any money and not have benefits. And anything. thankfully it's worked out. You know, I got great advice from so many friends that did this before me. And I really learned how to do this. And was fortunate to have great clients. And, you know, now a lot of people are reaching out to me because, you know, either they don't like their job or they've been unfortunately laid off or they just want to go and chase this new journey. And I try to help as many people as I can. Like, you know, I can do probably an hour or two hours of Zoom every week with different people looking to become solopreneurs, but I want to scale it because I can't really continue to help that many people. So we're going to create a Slack group. We don't, and the Slack group is not created yet. We'll share a link where you can sign up in the Slack group where you sign up to your interest in the Slack group in our show notes, it's going to be highly curated. So we're not gonna, it ideally it will be mostly people in the United States because I think the challenges are probably country specific, language specific. This is going to be something Kevin and I are gonna be doing. We're, we're gonna have a Slack group and we will have people help each other. We'll obviously be there and share our experiences. I've been doing this for four years. Kevin, you've been doing it like a year now almost. Almost been. That's amazing. I'm t- proud of you. And we'll yeah. share our experiences. Anywhere <laughs> we're gonna be helpful. Just like having a full-time job, the challenges are the same over and over again. Like, do you make an LLC or an S corp, or you know those little things? How do you do a contract? What do you charge? Like, they're common to everyone, and you can squash that learning curve by talking to other people who know the answers to what you're doing. So, sign up with your interest. We'll have a link in the show notes to a Google form. We'd love to have you join.
0: That's what we'll do. I'm super excited about this, man. You pitched this idea to me, and I was like, yeah, that that combines all the things that I'm interested in, and all the things that you convinced me of that turned out to be true someone said to me they're like you know if you do that you're gonna to help to help people and i said i actually love
1: it like i i love helping people and see them do it so i i think of that as the upside
0: yeah honestly yeah yeah totally man totally and we will learn something from that as well so i'm excited about this eli so for everybody listening to this check out links in the show notes we're taking this very seriously reach out to us and let's make it happen talk to you next week And now it's your turn. Head over to contrarianmarketingpodcast.com and subscribe to the free weekly newsletter to get a summary of today's episode, key takeaways, and community content. And while you're there, go to today's episode and leave your opinion in the comments. We'll feature the best thoughts in the newsletter and on the podcast. Also, if you like today's episode, please feel free to leave five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thanks so much for tuning in and here next week.